Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. This morning, I uploaded a new YouTube teaching video to our website, which is just getting very full. Our YouTube site is getting very full, but it was a response to 2 Peter 2.1, because so many people write to me and say, what about the fact that these people denied the Lord that bought them? Doesn't that prove that you can deny the Lord once he has redeemed you? So we have responded to that, and that's up on YouTube now. Tonight, we're going to spend our whole evening in the book of Jeremiah because, as you might expect, Jeremiah is a very big book, and we've been taking selected highlights out of it, but there really is just so very much stuff. So what I've been trying to do is kind of categorize the sections of Jeremiah that we've been reading, depending on who is king at that particular moment, so that you can see how Jeremiah's prophecies were not only given to the leaders in Judea, but how his prophecies all came true. Sequentially, the things that he prophesied all actually happened. So tonight, we're going to start in Jeremiah 34. Turn there. And we will be doing a little bit of skipping around in Jeremiah, but we're concentrating mostly on the things that he is saying to Zedekiah. Now, Jeremiah is apparently a fairly influential prophet at this point because he does have access to the kings, as you've noticed. And once Babylon does conquer Judea and does break through the wall and burn the temple, once all of that actually occurs, then the general of the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, who is actually third in line for the throne. After Nebuchadnezzar dies, then his son becomes king. And then when he dies, his son-in-law becomes king. Well, at this moment, his son-in-law is the general who's in charge of the armies that are ransacking Judea. And so he has a conversation with Jeremiah as well. Once he has conquered Judea, he treats Jeremiah quite well. For two reasons, because Jeremiah, number one, has accurately predicted what's going to happen, that Babylon is going to become the leading (coughs) empire in the Middle Eastern world. So God is on his side. That's a good reason to treat him well. But also because he's been telling the kings, as we're about to read, he's been telling the kings to tell the people, look, don't fight this. This is the work of God. And because it's the work of God... If you just go along with it, if you just turn yourselves over to the Chaldeans, it's going to go pretty well with you. And they're going to take you into Babylon, but you'll be able to have a life there. You're going to be there for 70 years, and you're going to be able to kind of set up shop and buy, sell, trade, and and at least you'll still be alive. But if you resist what God is doing then God is going to punish you for your resistance because this is going to happen no matter what. So that's an interesting twist, I think, on the absolute sovereignty of God. And it's actually something that I struggle with a little bit within this context. Sometimes we see people who are going through a tough time. And I believe so completely in the sovereignty of God that I'm convinced that whatever happens to you is what God intends to have happen to you. Otherwise, it wouldn't be happening to you Mm -hmm. because there is no randomness in God's universe and there is no way that the devil can bring about some trouble or suffering or pain in your life without God being in charge of it. So I see people that are going through a difficult time and my immediate empathetic response is to try to stop their suffering. But then I have to remember that they're going through it for a reason. And God takes people through their struggles and their trials in order to produce faith in them, in order to teach them some important lessons, and in order to drive them to their knees so that they will look to God as their only deliverance. 
And I don't want to get in the way of that. I don't want to get in the middle of that. And uh, God, because he's sovereign, and me, because I'm a worm, I sometimes will try to make things okay. And no matter what I do, I just can't make it okay. And that's when I realize, oh, I'm not supposed to make it okay. This is something God is doing. And I'm not big enough to make God stop doing it. So I'm just going to accept that God is going to take these people through that. I'm going to be here if they need my help. But God is going to do what God is going to do. Well, that's the same thing that Jeremiah is about to say to the king. He's going to say to Zedekiah, God is doing what God is doing. And you can either go along with it or you can resist it. And going along with it is the better option. Because if you resist it, it's going to go real bad for you. So what do the people of Israel do when they hear this news? Resist it. Because that's the human notion. The idea is, no, no, no. God's on our side. God's for us. Everything's going to be fine for us. There's no way that the Babylonians are ever going to conquer Jerusalem. So one of the things that Jeremiah is going to point out is a particular rule that God actually placed in the law. And we'll look at the couple of places where it's listed tonight. But one of the things that God was very specific about among the Israelites was that they should not keep other Israelites as servants for more than seven years. So if somebody became an indentured servant, if somebody had borrowed money from somebody else and then wasn't able to pay it back, they could actually work it off as an indentured servant. But if it was an Israelite who was serving an Israelite at the end of six years of service, on the seventh year, they were to go free. And the Israelites, in their rebellion against God, had even stopped doing that. Well, under Zedekiah, he had kind of re-implemented that rule because Babylon was starting to come down on Jerusalem. So he makes a general decree that all Israelites are free. Everybody gets to go free. Nobody's a servant of anybody anymore. And they substantiate that rule by a covenant that they form in God's house, in the temple. And they carve a calf in half, and they walk through the calves, and they say, okay, all the servants are going to be free. But then, right about the time that Babylon has reached the walls of Jerusalem, and are keeping the people within Jerusalem inside the walls where they're slowly starving. It takes a lot of time for this to occur, but the Babylonian armies are camped right outside the walls of Jerusalem. Well, meanwhile, the Egyptian army decides to come help Jerusalem, and the Chaldeans get wind of it. So the Chaldeans break camp in Jerusalem, and they go fight the Egyptians. And the people in Jerusalem find out that the Chaldeans are no longer outside. The Babylonians are no longer outside the wall. So you know that whole servant thing we were going to do? You know how we made a covenant about it? You know how we swore to God that we would do that? Mm. Now that we're not in danger, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep our servants again. And you're going to see Jeremiah say, you promised in front of God that you were going to do this. You made a vow. You made a covenant And now God is holding you guilty for the fact that you made a promise in the presence of God, and now you're not keeping that promise. And your promise was to just follow the directives of God. Six years, and then they're free. But you've been keeping people much longer than seven years, and now that you've agreed to free them, which you should, now that you're free again, now that you're safe again, you've decided you're going to keep them again. So, again, God is very conscious, very aware of the promises that people make to him. And people who make a vow and don't keep a vow, God, one way or the other, is going to make sure that he gets his due. So that's chapter 34. What did you say? Did you just say, yep? Yep. Did you say it or did she say it? I said yep. In my mind, it was Jennifer who went, yep. See, here at GCA, we don't say amen. Apparently, we just go, yep. (laughs) So, Jeremiah 34, verse 1. Let's start reading. 
the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, with all the kingdoms of the earth that were under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and against all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. Okay, this is God's decree, God's declaration. This is the city that God has chosen to place his name in. This is the, the chief city in God's economy. This is Jerusalem, the place where his temple is. He can do whatever he wants with it. Whatever belongs to him, he can do with it as he pleases. And here he tells us what he's pleased to do. Behold, I'm giving this city to the hands of the king of Babylon. Which you can see why the Israelites would go, Jeremiah, I don't like that prophecy. I don't think God would say something like that. So we're also going to see that Jeremiah pays a very, very high price for what he's willing to say. Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire, and you will not escape from his hand, for you will surely be captured and delivered into his hand. And you will see the king of Babylon eye to eye, and he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. By the way, I find the phrase eye to eye a tad ironic, because Zedekiah is going to be blinded in Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you will not die by the sword. You will die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they will burn spices for you. In other words, you're going to have a funeral that is appropriate for a king. They will say when they lament over you, alas, Lord. For I have spoken this word, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem, when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the remaining cities of Judah, that is, Lachish and Azekah. For they alone remained as fortified cities among the cities of Judah. All the other cities had already fallen to Babylonian incursion. To, they were overwhelmed by the armies of Babylon. So there were only a couple of cities that were still standing other than Jerusalem that the Chaldeans had yet to overwhelm. The word of the Lord, verse 8, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim release to them, that each man should free his male servants, and each man his female servant, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, so that no one should keep them, a Jew, his brother, in bondage. And all the officials and all the people obeyed, who had entered into the covenant that each man should set free his male servant and each man his female servant so that no one should keep them any longer in bondage. They obeyed and they set them free. But afterward, now in a moment we're going to find out after what. And that's why I began by telling you after Egypt shows up on the scene fighting against the Chaldeans that the Chaldeans leave Jerusalem and suddenly Jerusalem is safe again. Afterward, they turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants who they had set free and brought them into subjection for male servants and for female servants. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, saying, at the end of seven years, each of you shall free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to you and has served you for six years. You shall send him out free from you, but your forefathers 
did not obey me or incline their ear to me. Let's take a look at a couple places where that is specifically said. Tom, turn to Exodus 21, and we're looking for 21.2. And actually, if you want to read 21.2 to 4, that's okay, too. Steve, why don't you look up Deuteronomy 15.12? You'll notice I did not ask you if you wanted to read. I'm following your directive that I should just call on people. And if you want to read the couple of verses right after that as well, that's okay. In both of these places, you're going to hear God lay down the rule that if you have a servant from among your brethren, fellow Israelites, that you can only keep them for six years. On the seventh year, they get to go free. So what does Exodus 21.2 say, Tom? When, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, <coughs> and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. And Steve, what have you got for us? Deuteronomy 15.12 says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. So it's very clear that in the law, God was very specific in saying, if you have an Israelite servant, six years at the max, on the seventh year, he goes free. And yet, the people weren't doing that. The reason that I asked Steve to read more than just the first verse that he read there was so that we understand that God said, when you put them out, you also have to give them from your flock, from your vineyard. You have to give them something because they don't own anything. And if you just free them, well, then they're free paupers. And so you have to give them something to build a life off of. So that actually gave the masters a great deal of influence over the people who were in their servitude. If they didn't give them the wherewithal to go free, they couldn't go free. And so they would hold on to their servants, and God was upset with them for not doing that. And then they actually come into the temple, into the house of God, and make a covenant and cut a calf in half and walk through the halves. The point being of uh, forming a covenant with the severed halves of an animal is that you're essentially saying, let whatever happened to this animal happen to me if I don't keep my side of the covenant. And so here they've gone through the covenant right in the temple in front of God. Okay, we're going to do what you've said we're supposed to do. We're going to free our servants. And then they turned around and said, uh, never mind. I kind of like having people do all my work. So we're going to keep our servants. So the word of the Lord said, starting at verse 13, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you shall set free his Hebrew brother, who has been sold to you and has served you for six years. You shall send him out free from you, but your forefathers did not obey me or incline their ear to me, although recently you had turned and done what is right in my sight each man proclaiming release to his neighbor. And you had made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. So that means they made the covenant right in the temple. And yet, verse 16, yet you turned and profaned my name, and each man took back his male servant and each man his female servant, whom you had set free according to their desire. And you brought them into subjection to be your male servants and your female servants. Now, before I read verse 17, I just want to make a comment about God's sense of irony. Because when God brings about his justice, he oftentimes 
couches it in the language of irony. So he's going to say, okay, so now that you gave them their freedom and then took it back, I'm going to give you the freedom to go and die. That's the irony of God. Verse 17, therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord, a release to the sword and to the pestilence and to the famine, and I will make you a terror in all the kingdoms of the earth. That doesn't mean that they're going to be a terror to other people. It means that all the nations of the earth will look at them in horror and see that they've been treated terribly. Verse 18, and I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut in half the two parts of a calf and passed between its parts the officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemy and into the hand of those that seek their life and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life and into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has gone away from before you. See that? They've gone away from before you. That's because they had encamped outside the walls of Jerusalem. And then because the Egyptians came up, they had left, which is why the people in Jerusalem said, oh, now it's peace and safety, so we'll keep our servants. A minute ago, when it looked like we were all going to die anyway, Go ahead, be free. Oh, we're not going to die right now? Oh, okay, well then you need to still be my servant. So when the king of Babylon had gone away from you, that's when you changed your mind. So verse 22, behold, I am going to command, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to this city, and they shall fight against it, and they will take it, and they will burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without an inhabitant. So if you thought you were doing well to take your servants back so that you could have a better life, I will make it so that you either die by famine or die by the sword. And when I get done, there won't be an inhabitant in here. And that's God's sense of justice. Because again, he was very fair with them to begin with. He took them by the hand out of Egypt. He gave them his law. And parts of his law were just Socially, very fair. If you take a servant, you can't keep them for more than six years. That's a good deal. So he was looking for comradeship. He was looking for fellowship. He was looking for neighborliness within his distinct people, that they would care for each other, that they would love one another. And he wasn't getting that out of them. And so he declares that he's going to destroy Jerusalem. Now, Go ahead two chapters. Go to chapter 37, because we've already read chapter 35 a couple weeks ago. That was about the Rechabites. And we've read chapter 36 about the scroll that was burned. And so we're going to start at chapter 37. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had made king in the land of Judah, reigned as king in place of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. You know this Coniah as Jehoiakim. He had a couple of different names. Coniah was one of them. And actually earlier in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah refers to Jehoiakim several times as Coniah. But neither he, the king, nor his servants, nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord which he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Yet King Zedekiah sent, now here come the names again. He could have sent Dave and Bill and, and Howard, and I would have been fine here, but King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, 
the son of Maasiah, the priest, to Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, please pray to the Lord our God on our behalf. Now, I just find this amusing because we've just been told one verse earlier that the king and the priests and the people wouldn't do what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah is speaking the words of God to them and they will not respond to it. But when they're in trouble, they send to Jeremiah and say, will you go pray to God for us? The most recent example of that. And I mention it frequently, so you'll be familiar with it. But America had become a, a rather moderately Christian nation in the uh, 1900s and the early 2000s. And then in 2001, September 11, planes hit buildings. And all of a sudden, everybody in Congress is standing on the steps of of the Senate, and they're standing out there singing, God bless America. Now they want God's blessing. Oh, now we're in trouble. Oh, now we've been attacked. Oh, now, even though we have sanctioned abortion, and even though we've sanctioned gay relationships, and even though we've said that Christianity can't be in our schools, and even though we've taken the Ten Commandments out of every public place that's government-run or owned, even though we've denied God on every front, now that we've been attacked, oh, God, we want God. And the following Sunday, they were all in the church up there on the Capitol, all in there with their, their several different priests and rabbis and everybody praying, please, God, help us. And he did. And we haven't had any more attacks since 2001. So it's been about 16 years. So what do we do? As a group, we go back to just denying God and go back to our old ways and go back to, in fact, it wasn't just uh, saying that homosexuality was okay. Now we've made it homosexual marriage and now the church is ordaining homosexual bishops and priests and all these things continue to happen that are the exact opposite of what God said should happen, not only in the nation, but within the church. And it's happening because we are once again comfortable. We're fat and happy. We're fed. Everything's good. Now that everything's good, we feel independent, and we go back to doing things our way. But let a plane hit a building, and it's all, God bless America. It's all our senators and congressmen out there holding hands and talking about how we need God, and suddenly prayer is okay in public school for about a week. And now we're back to the same old, Trouble the same old way. So my point in bringing that up is to say people haven't changed. Nothing's really changed. They don't do what Jeremiah says to do. But, oh, yes, they will ask Jeremiah to go pray to God because they're in trouble. The Chaldeans are coming down on them. So verse 4. Now, Jeremiah was still coming in and going out among the people. For he had not yet been put into prison. Okay, that's a clue. He's going to be put into prison. It's not a comfortable life that Jeremiah is living, going around saying these things that God has told him to say. Jeremiah was still coming in and going out among the people, for they had not yet put him into prison. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's army had set out from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans, who had been besieging Jerusalem, heard the report about them, they lifted the siege from Jerusalem. So that's what we were talking about in the previous chapter, that now they had gone away. And as a consequence, the Israelites in Judea went back to their old ways. Verse 6, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus you are to say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. The Chaldeans will also return and fight against this city. They will capture it. They will burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely go away from us. For they will not go, 
For even if you had defeated the entire army of Chaldeans who were fighting against you, and there were only wounded men left among them, each man in his tent, they would rise up and burn the city with fire. Why? Because God has determined that Jerusalem is going to be burned with fire. That's just absolutely going to happen. So God has gone so far as to say, even if there was nobody left out there on the battlefield but a couple of wounded men, they would burn the city with fire. Because God has declared that they're going to burn the city with fire. Verse 11. Now it happened when the army of the Chaldeans had lifted the siege from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin in order to take possession of some property there among the people. So Benjamin is the other tribal group that is in the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, and the Levites that served in the temple. And so he is going into the area of Benjamin. He gets as far as the gate, and he's going to settle some kind of land dispute. He's going to take possession of some property there among the people. Verse 13, and when he was at the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard whose name was Arijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, was there. And he arrested Jeremiah the prophet saying, you are going over to the Chaldeans. So he thought that the reason that he had left Jerusalem and was going into the area of Benjamin was because he was trying to escape. So he was caught and he was arrested. Verse 14, but Jeremiah said, that's a lie. I am not going over to the Chaldeans, yet he would not listen to him. So Arijah arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. Then the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him. And they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan, the scribe, which they had made into a prison. For Jeremiah had come into the dungeon, that is, a vaulted cell, and Jeremiah stayed there for many days. Now King Zedekiah sent and took him out. And in his palace, the king secretly asked him and said, Is there a word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. Now, I'm sure that King Zedekiah, when he asked Jeremiah, is there a word from the Lord? He was thinking, is there a word of deliverance? Is there anything positive happening? And Jeremiah said confidently, oh, there is. Oh, yeah, there's a word from the Lord. Yeah, you, you're going to be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. That's the word of the Lord. Verse 18, moreover, Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, in what way have I sinned against you or against your servants or against this people that you have put me in prison? Where then are your prophets who prophesied to you saying the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? But now please listen, O my lord, the king, please let my petition come before you and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan, the scribe that I may not die there. Jeremiah is concerned because the Chaldeans have cordoned off Jerusalem and they're running out of food. So he knows that if he goes back to the prison house that he's going to die there. So verse 21, King Zedekiah gave commandment and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse and they gave him a loaf of bread daily from the Baker Street until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guardhouse. Now, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, and Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, the son of Malchijah, heard the words that Jeremiah was speaking to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord. He who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. 
Thus says the Lord, this city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Then the officials said to the king, now let this man be put to death inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. So Jeremiah is telling the truth to the people and the people say, what? Well, then he has to die. We have to kill him for telling the truth. Why? Because he's discouraging people. It doesn't feel good. We want him to sing up, up, up with people. We want him to say something. Give me a Joel Osteen message. Tell me something positive. I I don't want this message of God has determined to burn Jerusalem and we're all going into captivity. He's discouraging us. So he has to die. Verse 5, so King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. Then they took Jeremiah and they cast him into a cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. Let me describe what this cistern is for just a moment. The cisterns in Jerusalem were carved into the rock. They were sort of like a well, except that a well is dug to find water underneath it. A cistern is carved into the rock to hold water so that during the rainy season, it would fill up with water. And then when there's no rain, they still have water all over Israel. So there are lots of cisterns in Israel. And of course, because it's very rocky terrain, they have to dig down into the rock. So because it's the dry season here, there's no water in the cistern. Otherwise, Jeremiah would have drowned. There's only mud. And when he's let down by a rope into it, he sinks down into the mud. So he's at the bottom of a dark well in the mud waiting to die. That's the price he's paying for telling the truth that God told him to tell. They took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the cistern, there was no water, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. But... Ebed-Melech, now that word actually means the servant of the king. This fellow, this Ethiopian, this Ebed-Melech, a eunuch, while he was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, and now the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin. Then Ebed-Melech went out from the king's palace and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, These men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern. And he will die right where he is because of the famine, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Abed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take thirty men from under your authority and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. So, Abed-Melech took the men under his authority and went into the king's palace to a place beneath the storeroom, and he took out worn-out clothes and worn-out rags and let them down by ropes into the cistern of Jeremiah. So in other words, he just tied together a bunch of old rags and old clothes, and he tied them together so that it would act as a rope, and he let it down into the cistern. Verse 12, then Abed-Melech The Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, now put these worn out clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes, and Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah, took 30 men apparently, and they pulled Jeremiah up. That's how stuck in the mud he apparently was. And they pulled him up with the ropes and they lifted him out of the cistern and Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse. Then King Zedekiah sent And had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance that is in the house of the Lord. 
By the way, that's a, a rare reference. We virtually never hear about the third entrance into the house of the Lord. It's probably the connecting passageway between the king's house, which is right by the temple, so that the king wouldn't have to deal with the hoi polloi. He wouldn't have to deal with the people. He had his own private entrance into the temple. King Zedekiah sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance that is in the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I'm going to ask you something. Do not hide anything from me. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not certainly put me to death? Besides, if I give you advice, you will not listen to me. But King Zedekiah swore to Jeremiah in secret, saying, As the Lord lives, who made this life for us, surely I will not put you to death, nor will I give you over to the hand of these men who are seeking your life. What's missing from that promise? He didn't say he would take his counsel. He said, you'll put me to death, and if I tell you the truth, you won't listen to me. And the king said, I promise not to put you to death. <laughs> oh, but wait, are you going to take my counsel? Uh, it turns out he doesn't. Verse 17, then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will indeed go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then you will live. In other words, just go turn yourself over, go surrender yourself and you'll live. And then this city will not be burned with fire, and your household will survive. But if you will not go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then this city will be given over to the hand of the Chaldeans, and they will burn it with fire, and you yourself will not escape from their hand. Do you think Jeremiah knew which way this was going to go? Do you think God knew which way this was going to go? God has already declared repeatedly, that Jerusalem's going to be burned with fire. And so he dangles this promise in front of the king and says, now look, if you'll just swallow your pride for a moment, and if you'll go out and just surrender to the king of Babylon, then not only will you save yourself and your family, and you'll all live, but I won't even burn Jerusalem. That sounds like a good deal, right? But he knew full well that Zedekiah was not going to listen. Then King Zedekiah, this is verse 19, said to Jeremiah, I dread the Jews who have gone over to the Chaldeans, lest they give me over into their hand and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, they will not give you over. Please obey the Lord in what I am saying to you, that it will go well with you and you may live. But if you keep refusing to go out, this is the word which the Lord has shown me. Then behold, all of the women who have been left in the palace of the king of Judah are going to be brought out to the officers of the king of Babylon. And those women will say, your close friends have misled and overpowered you. While your feet were sunk in mire, they turned back. They will also bring out all of your wives and your sons to the Chaldeans, and you yourself will not escape from their hand, but you will be seized by the hand of the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned with fire. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no man know about these words, and you will not die. So if nobody knows that you told me this, it'll be our little secret. Then nobody will hold me responsible for what God has told me. But if the officials hear that I have talked with you and come to you and say to you, tell us now what you said to the king and what the king said to you, do not hide it from us and we will not put you to death. Then you are to say to them, I was presenting my petition before the king not to make me return to the house of Jonathan to die there. Now, you can start to get a feel for really how weaselly this king is. This is a king who has promised Jeremiah that he's not going to die, and yet when the officials came and said, we, we need to put him in prison, he went, well, what can I do against you? 
when Jeremiah comes to him, tell me what God has for me. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Okay, don't tell anybody else. I don't want people to know this is what God thinks of me. I don't want that to get out. And in fact, if anybody asks you what we talked about, lie to them. And don't make it look like you were the authority. Make it look like I was the authority. That you came to me to ask me to let you out. Verse 27. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and questioned him. So he reported to them in accordance with all these words which the king had commanded. And they ceased speaking with him since the conversation had not been overheard. So Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse until the day that Jerusalem was captured. Chapter 39. Now, I do want to read chapter 39, but before we do that, maybe we'll get to chapter 39 tonight. Maybe we won't. So plant it in your memory for just a moment, because the fall of Jerusalem is actually going to happen. And as I mentioned, this Nebuzaradan the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's army, who is Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, he's actually going to treat Jeremiah fairly well. But go back to chapter 20 for just a moment of Jeremiah, because I want you to get some sense. After Jeremiah has been beaten, after he's been left in a well, after he has gone into these imprisonments, after he's, after he's gone through all of these terrible things that he's had to go through, I think that we have a tendency to kind of not humanize the characters that we see in the Bible. We have a tendency to think that Paul just walked around all day with his arms akimbo like, I'm Paul and I'm in charge. And, and yet he would write things like, I know how to be abased and I know how to suffer lack and I've been beaten five times and 39 lashes and I was at shipwreck at sea in a day and a night in the deep. And I mean, he really lived a very hard life because he was willing to tell the truth about God. Well, Jeremiah also, because he was willing to tell the truth about God, he lived a very difficult and hard life. And he did write a book, by the way, called The Lamentations. He was somebody who lamented over Jerusalem and over Jerusalem's fall. So in chapter 20, we're going to start at verse 7, just so that you can hear really how depressed Jeremiah had become. And how difficult all these things were for him. He starts at verse 7 and says, well, well, wait a minute, let's go back. I was going to point out that this is all to Pashur the priest, the son of Immer, and how that connects to what we were just reading. But let's not worry about that for just now. This all took place at the Benjamin Gate, which we've been talking about repeatedly. And, and Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks that he was put in. That's what leads Jeremiah to say this. O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou hast overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say, I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. For I have heard the whispering of many, saying terror on every side. Denounce him. Yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends are watching for my fall, saying perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. Does this sound like a happy guy? It's about to get worse. In a minute, he's going to say, woe to my mother who gave me birth. Woe to the man who went to my dad and said, it's a boy. I mean, he was really upset about the life he had to live. But look at the language he uses, that if he doesn't speak for God, if he doesn't say the word of God, that it, it burns inside him like a burning fire. He has to speak it. 
He has to say it. He has to put it forth, even though it's going to cause him all this pain and rebuke. Verse 11, but the Lord is with me like a dread champion or like a feared or fearful champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, thou who dost test the righteous, who seest the mind and the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them. For to thee I have set forth my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of the evildoers. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you, and made him very happy. And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting, and let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon because he did not kill me before birth so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. I know she's right, but I just want you to get a feel for Jeremiah's frame of mind. This was an incredibly, incredibly difficult task. But the fact that it was difficult and the fact that he suffered physically and suffered emotionally, the fact that he suffered all this torment did not cause God to let up and say, never mind, Jeremiah, you don't have to do this anymore. Instead, God said, this is what I require of you. I chose you from long ago in your mother's womb. I have, I've determined who you're going to be and what you're going to be about. And because I've chosen you and given you my word, this is the price you have to pay. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Now, I think it's fair to say that the example of Jeremiah is an example that we all need to hold on to and remember because we like to think that because we are Christians in the world today and that the world is largely anti-Christian and anti-biblical, we like to think that we're suffering some persecution. But how many of you have been stuck in a muddy well lately and left there to die with no bread? That's what Jeremiah went through. And imprisonments, and he was put in stocks, and he took beatings until he reached the point of saying, Woe is me, woe to my mother, woe to my father. It would be better if I hadn't been born than to go through all this. And yet, faithful Jeremiah, who had this burning in his belly, this burning in his bones where the word of God just consumed him. He had to go out and proclaim what God had told him to say. Faithful Jeremiah, as I've said repeatedly, spoke for 40 years the word of God, even under this kind of torment, and even though he never had a convert. But once the word of God gets a hold of you, once the word of God overwhelms you, you have no choice but respond. Because if Jeremiah had a choice, if Jeremiah had this kind of free will that we hear about all the time, that he could just choose not to do this, he wouldn't. He'd say the same thing all the false prophets were saying. And he'd make himself very popular with the king. But he didn't do that. He said exactly what God said even at the cost of massive pain, suffering, and unpopularity. And that's the kind of commitment that I think we today still need to hold on to, that the word of God is worth suffering for, worth dying for, worth proclaiming. And for any of you who have ever had that burning in the belly feeling, you know what I'm talking about. Once the word of God gets in touch with you and takes over and, and overwhelms you, you, you can't stop talking about it. People say, you know, Jim, your sermons are long. 
We get here at 10.30. We sometimes don't leave till 12.30. I can't stop talking about it. The only reason the sermon ends is because I make myself stop talking about it. I have to keep saying the word of God. Now, I'm not trying to make this about me. I'm just simply saying that all of us who have been consumed by the word of God have no choice but to speak it, but to talk about it, but to promote it, but to tell people about it. Go back to Jeremiah 39. Let's hear the end of the story, and then we'll all go home. We're nearly done. But since I mentioned this, and it's a fairly short chapter, since I mentioned this, I want you to see it. It came about when Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the city wall was breached. Now, I've got some notes here. Let me just read this little piece to you because... Actually, I just lifted this out of one of the commentaries, and I'm sorry that I don't remember which commentary I lifted this out of. The final conflict began in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign in the tenth month. We just read that. This event was so traumatic that it was recorded three times in the Old Testament, even noting the day of the month. You read about it in 2 Kings 25.1, Jeremiah 52.4, and Ezekiel 24:1-2. The siege began on January 5th, 588 BC, and lasted until the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year. Using a Western method of reckoning of dates, this would seem to give a siege of approximately 19 months. However, using the method for reckoning dates employed by the Hebrews, the length of the siege was much longer, for the years of the Hebrew kings were calculated on a Tishri to Tishri calendar. That's one of the months of the lunar year among the, the Jews. It falls about September, October, our calendar. So they were calculated from Tishri to Tishri, while the months of the year for all of Israel were calculated on a Nisan to Nisan calendar. Zedekiah's 11th year extended from October 18, 587 B.C. to October 6, 586. Then the fourth month from Nisan that coincided with his 11th year began on July 10, 586. So the ninth day of that month would be July 18, 586 B.C. Therefore, the entire siege lasted just over 30 months. From January 15th, 588 to July 18th, 586 B.C. And after the 30-month siege, the Babylonians broke through the city. So the siege on Jerusalem took a long time. That's what I want you to see. A couple of years where the people of Jerusalem were trapped inside their city walls. And they couldn't go out and thresh their fields. And they couldn't go out and kill animals and bring the meat home. Whatever food they had behind the walls was what food they had. And when that food ran out, when there was no more grain for the bakers to bake bread, when there was no more meat to eat, then eventually there was famine and there was starvation and pestilence. You can imagine that without the food and with dead bodies, now the, the sickness starts to grow. Jerusalem had to have been a very, very ugly place at this moment. Verse 3 of Jeremiah 39. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came in and sat down at the middle gate. Nergal-Sar-Ezer, Samgar-Nebu, Sar-Sikam, the Rabsaris, Nergal-Sar-Ezer, the Rabmag, and all the rest of the officials of the king of Babylon. And it came about when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, that they fled and went out of the city at night by the way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went out toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and they seized him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, 
and he passed sentence on them. Now, if that sounds really, really familiar to you, that's because it's exactly what 2 Kings 25 says. And a week or two ago, we read it out of 2 Kings 25. Verse 5, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They seized him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him there. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes at Riblah. The king of Babylon also slew all the nobles of Judah. And then he blinded Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in fetters of bronze to bring him to Babylon. The Chaldeans also burned with fire the king's palace and the houses of the people, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And as for the rest of the people who were left in the city, the deserters who had not gone over to him, and the rest of the people who remained, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, carried them into exile in Babylon. But some of the poorest people who had nothing, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, left behind in the land of Judah and gave them vineyards and fields at that time. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, saying, take him and look after him and do nothing harmful to him but rather deal with him just as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, sent word along with, along with Bob and Dave and three other guys, along with Nebuchadnezzar, the Rabsaurus, and Nergalsar Ezer, the Rabmag, and all the leading officers of the king of Babylon. They even sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the guardhouse and entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and they took him home. So he stayed among the people. Now the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was confined to the court of the guardhouse, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, that's the one who had gotten him out of the cistern before, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring my words on this city for disaster and not for prosperity, and they will take place before you on that day, but I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men whom you dread, for I will certainly rescue you, and you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as a booty because you have trusted me, declares the Lord. What does that tell you? It tells you that God is perfectly capable of not only bringing all kinds of destruction and all kinds of famine and sword and pestilence and all kinds of problems and burning and fire. He's able to bring his wrath on a people group. He's able to destroy a city. He's able to do whatever he wants with what is his. But when there's one person who trusted him, he's able to save that person. So even as the world continues to look more and more ungodly, more and more unbiblical, even as the world looks like it's headed, I was going to say, on a highway to hell, and then suddenly a song broke out in my head, and I paused. <laughs> but even as it looks like the whole world is just going to, to heck in a basket, even though it just looks like the world is on a sure path to God's judgment, God knows full well how to save those that trust him. And you'll notice that this was just an Ethiopian slave. He was just a servant to the king. He was just a, a servant, just a nobody, just somebody who served in the, in the king's palace. That's all he was. God knew who he was. God knew what he did. God knew that he went to the king on behalf of Jeremiah, the prophet of God, and that he saw to it that Jeremiah was brought up out of the cistern and returned to his prophetic scheme. And God knew that, and God didn't forget that, and God remembered that, and God saved that man while he destroyed everybody else. 
So that ought to give us great confidence again, because here at GCA we do talk an awful lot about God's ability to not only choose and elect, but also to love and protect his own people. And our confidence is in him to protect us and preserve us and get us all the way home, despite the fact that the world is going to hate us for what we're saying, that the world is going to reject it, that the world isn't going to hear it. Same thing they did in Jeremiah's time. But faithfulness to God results in the goodness of God exhibited in the salvation of his people. You got that? And it's all the way through the Bible. I keep saying the Bible only tells one story. The theology is consistent. You see it over and over and over and over again. And I think if we've seen anything tonight, we've seen, well, first off, God is really sovereign. And if he's going to burn Jerusalem, he's going to burn Jerusalem. But in his sovereignty and in his attention to detail, he's aware of what every person does. And he's willing to save his own who respond to him positively. I just find that remarkable because there were no people on the planet at the time that knew what this Ethiopian servant was doing. There was nobody giving him great accolades as if he had done some great thing. But God preserved him and gave him long life for it. And I just like that. All right, I'm done. Anybody got any comments or questions? We bit off a big chunk of Jeremiah tonight. And you know what? We're not done. Because now that King Zedekiah has been removed out of Jerusalem, and the only people in Jerusalem are the very poor and downtrodden, Nebuchadnezzar is going to give them sort of a mayor who's just going to judge over them and settle disputes. But they're not going to have a king anymore. The kings, the lineage of David, had ended with Zedekiah being taken into Babylon. And you don't see any more kings of David until Jesus walks on the planet and rides into Jerusalem and people throw their palm branches and their cloaks in the street and they shout Hosanna to the son of David and the Davidic line is restored. But at this moment, no more kings. So since we're reading technically in 2 Kings, we're at the stage of no more kings. All right, let's go home. Say goodbye to the internet people. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.